All right. Explosions burst from the big man's gun. The noise muffled and though he was close enough that Jessica could see the flashes, with turn fire ricocheted, heading toward her and Lauren, where they flattened themselves against the wood floor. Splinters stung the backs of Jessica's hands from a bullet that blew through the planks nearby. She cried out, hyperventilating her, ears still ringing from the blow to her head. She forced herself not to throw up, the floor spinning like Dorothy's bed leaving Kansas. It felt as if she'd been trapped for a million seconds, each one ticking by like a whirling, off-kilter metronome. Jessica felt Lauren grab her arm and yank her toward a nearby window, a way out. She followed. More blasts filled the room, one after the next. The women hit the floor again. The big man charged toward the door, shooting, shouting. He stopped suddenly, propelled backwards. He took one stutter step back, his gun firing wildly as he fell to the floor. The room went mute, buzzing now. Dizziness and shock overtook Jessica, the room seeming to darken. She sensed running nearby, Lauren's hand grasping her again, pulling her to get up now. Jessica followed, moving toward the window, a bright rectangle in the dimness around them. But Lauren suddenly froze and held her back. The attacker stood in the doorway, gun trained on them. That's a brief excerpt to a book I just read by Michelle W. Miller, author of many great things, including this, Widows in Law, coming out in paperback February 2020. It's available now. Musically, we have Sarah Siddiqui later in the show from her album, No More Waiting Rooms. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at substance use disorder recovery and today art less dogma and more bite this is episode 51 we talked to michelle about her new book about writing about recovery it's going to be great this is michelle w miller author of widows in law and we're listening to rebellion dogs radio Hi, Michelle. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Uh, this is the second book of yours I read. I don't know how far back your books go, but you. It, what is the actual release date of Widows-in-Law? Well, Widows-in-Law is, is, has paperback release on February 25th, 2020. Mm-hmm. It, the hardcover came out on, and audio and Kindle came out on February 26th. 2019. 2019, okay. Yes. And then in 2013, you put out um, the first book I ever read of yours, which was uh, 13th Step Zombie Apocalypse. uh, Zombie Recovery. Zombie Recovery, that's right. But it's about surviving a zombie apocalypse. Right. And, um, yeah, it's not the 13th step everyone's thinking about. (laughs) No, in in that book... There was a zombie apocalypse where the only survivors were those who had either the addict-slash-alcoholic gene or were uh, descendants of addicts-alcoholics, so they had the gene. So it basically was a bunch of program people and Alanonics who, of course, are natural enemies, right? Yeah. Uh, 
stuck together at the end of the world with a bunch of, you know, zombies to deal with. In fiction form, you did a wonderful job in that book of making some of maybe your own personal commentary on the state of the recovery community today. And I'm not going to spoiler alert anything, but I'm going to recommend if people are ordering your book and they need a few extra bucks to get the free shipping, they should order both of your books because uh, I, I think it stands the test of time. Oh, well, thank you so much. You know, I, I, I mean, no, I don't, I think the, without it being a spoiler, I think that the primary thing that I was trying to say, other than the idea that of a world washed clean and, and people having the hope of a new life, which is, of course, one of the things about recovery that we, uh, that we get, um, it was also a commentary on, on dogmatic you know, AANA 12 step and that, you know, these programs should be inclusive enough for everyone and for every belief. So that, that is a very strong tenant of mine. And, um, I did through, I guess, satire and, uh, and drama set that, that situation up so that that message could be gotten across. Uh -huh. And I was very concerned at the time about some of the more dogmatic sects of AA that were um, and, and continue to be quite popular with some. Well, yeah, they, they do. It seems that any book-based society in the goodness of time will sort of branch off into the widening the gateway crowd and the preserving the integrity of the message crowd. And, uh, yeah. and we, we see that. We see that. Well, and there's, it's a fine balance, obviously. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I, have, oh, I have been one who has advocated that at least in the AA literature that the misogynistic um, unhealthy messages might be updated well I mean it's uh, heteronormative it's uh, you know uh, sort of Christian Judeo I mean there, there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that weren't intended to exclude people but if they had treated it, if they, my big beef is if you want to call it a textbook Treat it like a grade five math book. Nothing's really changed about the mathematics that we're teaching grade five since 1939, but they still update the textbook every five years, so it's speaking a current language. They improve the way they communicate right. to kids, and why wouldn't we do that with our book? Right, you know, and, and uh, well, and, and of course we know that there's, you know, uh, sort of a religious dogma that comes through like there's a religiosity to it that I don't I you know while I think the books are a miracle and uh, there are many ways that one could attribute that miracle I mean look the guys who wrote the big book only had three years clean when they wrote it so yeah. it's a miracle that they wrote that at all um, <laughs> and yeah I mean like now I mean when you know when a lot of us have substantial uh, clean or sober time depending on what fellowship you're in um, and I myself have 30 years, um, you know, we could look at that and say, wow, I can't believe they wrote that. Yeah. You know, uh, but, you know, on the other hand, that does not mean that a, a group conscience can't, can't update the literature. Yeah. Um, or write another book, uh, which uh, might be an easier way to go about it if uh, there's just too much resistance. It seems that uh, I, I wrote an article about how 
founders and entrepreneurs think different than followers and employees. Mm -hmm. And if Henry Ford had turned his company over to the employees instead of to another innovator, uh, the Ford Motor Company would still be saying, why change the Model T? If it works, don't fix it. <laughs> right, right. And, so sort of fear-based, you know. And, yeah. and, and look, as a writer, I've, I've felt that fear, too, that, that my if I, if I edit my work, you know, and take people's suggestions of do this that way or do that that this way, that somehow the work will go like sort of fall like sand through my fingers and I'll lose the essence of it. But I... Um, I haven't, on the whole, I haven't found that my work has gotten less by, by revisiting it. Yeah. Uh, um, there is so much I want to talk to you about. This is one of them. <laughs> but it's not where I want to I know, I've gotten start. you all off because we haven't even talked about my book and I've, I've gotten you all off already. And yeah, no. There's so many different issues. Yeah, but there isn't a wrong way to do this. Uh, I want to talk about um, uh, your book and, uh, and, and your writing style. And your story, and you said in our little text back and forth, I can ask you anything. If I even yeah. cross that boundary, just say so. Uh, a female okay. author is entitled to her secrets. And so, you know, right. if, I, if I push too far, you know, we can, we can back off. Um, I, I w when I was reading your book, and I, I love fiction, but I never make time for it. So I don't read a lot of it. But uh, I have read some, of course, and I was wondering when I was reading uh, Widows in Law, do you read uh, Zoe Heller or Zoe Heller? I don't even how to know how to pronounce her name. Have you ever read a book called The Believers? No. Well, I'm going to recommend it to you. It, okay, it, I'm writing it down. And it involves a lawyer's family. And it's set in New York. And New York, like in your book, New York is really one of the characters in the book. <laughs> like, if you're reading your book and you live in Manhattan, y you throw them a, a, some, uh, you know, little uh, uh, candies, right? Like, they'll recognize the culture. They'll recognize the street corners and... Um, it doesn't mean it's unreadable to someone who lives in the Riviera or in Australia, but but uh, it, if you're a New Yorker, people will be nodding their head up and down. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> because you write yep. what you know, right? Right. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know. Everything has to serve the plot. The yeah. plot has to move forward. So there's nothing, hopefully there's no nothing gratuitous. It's not, you know, deep a deep work of, uh, it's not a deep literary work that's going to win the Pulitzer. It's a, a solidly, uh, solid thriller. And so it, the pages have to turn, but at the same time, you know, you have to set up the, the, the place. And, and yes, I'm, I've been a New Yorker all my life. Um, I, one of the things that I found pretty hilarious with the, some of the comments where, um, I mean, the book has gotten really good reviews, but there were a couple of comments where they said that my bad guys weren't realistic. And it was almost like, you know, it was, you know, to me it was funny because some of the bad guys were the only ones I really knew, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, there's a hitman in, in here and, and, 
you know, I have to say that, you know, I have a pretty nefarious uh, story. And so, yes, I have known some hitmen and I have known some cartel guys and I have, you know, you know, I've run into my share of gangsters and um, there's probably not that many mainstream authors out there that can bring that kind of reality into a book. And of course, I've, you know, I've also been a child abuse prosecutor in New York, so I know the family courts. I've, um, you know, and I've been an addict in New York, so I, I know that, that side of side of things. Um, I was a, one of the teenagers and a rebellious teenager, and I was a rebellious teenager. <laughs> so I've, I've, you know, like, that's why Lawrence Block said that, you know, he's always said this, he said, I've lived more lives than a cat. And, you know, a lot of us have yeah. lived more lives than a cat. And, and you know, so, so some of that comes out in this, uh, including the New York setting, which, you know, I, is what I know best. The, the characters in your book, you've got these two law partners, Brian Silverman and Stephen Cook. And Brian has Lauren, the ex-wife, mother of his child, Emily, and his new wife, Jessica. And then uh, Steve's wife is Nicole. And then later on, there is uh, sort of shady guy, Jordan uh, Connors. There's the FBI guy, Carl Clinton. You've probably known a few of them. And then there's some Dominican Republican gangsters, some Chinese gangsters. And uh, and there's some areas in New York, St. Mark's. Um, uh, and I bet you've got a history there, and I, I want to hear about that for sure. Well, you've answered one of my questions just based on what you've told me about your background. I always wonder, well, how much of this particular character is autobiographical when I'm reading an author. And I, I would think you identify to some extent with maybe all of them, but with Lauren especially. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously Lauren, Lauren is an attorney um, who's been clean uh, about 20 years yeah. and has gone on and, and, and has this pretty normal life. Her drug use was a little bit early, not earlier than mine, because I was an addict at 13. Yeah. But her, the end of her drug, her drug use ended when she, by the time she was 17, 18 years old. And I think the thing that's most autobiographical about the story is the idea, the underlying fear when you've escaped that catastrophe of being a low bottom addict like I was and like Lauren was, um, that something from that old life is going to pull you backwards into it. Like I've always had, come back to that theme um, that, you know, this must be a dream that I've escaped mm -hmm. this horror that I was in and that something, you know, something will pull me backwards. So here Lauren is basically being pulled backward into having, you know, to deal with like criminals and, you know, having to basically fight for her life again and, and for her child's life. And, you know, having felt that she had left that behind. Now, Lauren, her character, she was a teenage addict and a child of addicts. So I was not a child of addicts, although there were certainly some things in my family that led me to uh, prematurely grow up. Yeah. Um, Lauren sort of prematurely grew up in the sense like her parents were heroin and crack addicts. And, and so the inspiration there is, yes, 
in my early days in recovery, I spent a lot of time at St. Mark's. And for those who, I, it seems like a lot of people in recovery have heard of it. It was the former electric circus, I believe. And it was owned by a woman in recovery. And it was a, quite a large building on St. Mark's Place between uh, 3rd and 2nd Avenues. Um, and it's, no, it's since been re- redeveloped into uh, luxury housing as has mo- have most iconic places in New York. Yeah. And um, it was a 24-hour ramshackle building. With a, it, it was a, there was a shelter up on top where people helped maintain the buildings who were in er, basically early recovery and homeless. And mm-hmm. it was just basically a free-for-all in there. And, you know... I made most of my meetings in Harlem, which is where I got clean, mm-hmm. but we would all come down and I would come down and I would play spades down there and I would, of course, make meetings there. But for me, St. Mark's was more like, a, you know, and, and on the weekends we had uh, the Howe Club, which is, um, would uh, would have, there would be, uh, you know, a disco there at night, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, but there was a group of homeless teenagers who lived basically lived at St. Mark's and just they weren't really in recovery but they were always around and so uh based on the time period of the novel I you know I had uh uh Lauren be you know one of those kids and those kids were you know we had great affection for them and sort of mother I personally have a kind of always was a motherly person so I and I was only in my 20s and you know and these kids were in their teens and I would sort of mother them and you know uh give them cigarettes you know? <laughs> it's a very motherly thing to do but you know in our time, <laughs> you know giving a kid giving a teenager coffee and cigarettes was a kindness yeah um so yeah that was uh, so she was one of those kids who basically was living, uh, you know, sleeping on the floor of the Howl Club, uh, you know, at night. And uh, and there were just all sorts of insanity going on there in terms of, like, you'd be having a meeting and then there'd be, like, a mentally home- ill homeless person, like, throwing chairs in the back of the room and everybody would just keep on with the meeting. It's, I mean, it's quite, you know, there were many, many stories about St. Mark's and uh, and. Uh, I, you know, just have a, obviously, like most of the people who got clean around that time, I have quite a nostalgic memory of the place. And these kinds of things I do, uh, I do like to work into my fiction. Yeah, and uh, it's, anyone with a sort of inner city recovery scene experience, wherever it is, you know, will be able to sort of relate to that kind of uh uh, chaotic, where the one percents are right in there with the destitute and the no fixed address mm-hmm. people, and everything about recovery, right? Everything about addiction, right? Right, yeah. And we, you know, yeah, just like in addiction, you know, in the clubs and all that, you'd see you'd see all sorts of people. Um, and I think, you know, like when I'm writing, I'm not always thinking about what my message is going to be. So, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of grows, you know, organically mm-hmm. you know, when you're writing. So, you know, one of the things um, in the story is that Lauren is like this person with this very inner city sort of child soldier type of background mm-hmm. and traumatized and all that stuff. And then the second wife is this sort of trophy wife from, you know, Westchester County, you know, a very wealthy neighborhood. It's actually the, the town where uh, the Clintons live. So, you know, you get an idea of well, just how wealthy Chappaqua is in mm-hmm. Westchester County. And 
the two of them are in this uneasy alliance, both to help the, the, the daughter, Emily, be okay after the death of the husband by nefarious means, possibly. Um, <laughs> and, the two, and the two of them, you know, are working together, and so they would seem so different, right? But, it, you know, so as they go along, they have to work together and they find out how much they're not different, how much they, you know, at the core of humanity, it doesn't really matter if you're a 1% or if you're a person trying to get into this country at the border. Like, everybody has the same core and, you know, deserves to be loved, you know. Um, in recovery, we, we get to have those relationships. It took me a while to welcome them. Like, I was a low-bottom addict, and I would have people ask me to sponsor them who were, like, smoking weed or something. Mm -hmm. Back when weed wasn't even as good as it is now, and I'd be like, you know, too few many glasses of wine, and I'd be like, why are they asking me? Like, I'm a dope fiend. Like, I'm a 125th Street Methadonian. Why are you asking me? And because I couldn't, like, I had one... uh, Sponsor, he once asked me, like, what's a tenement, right? So I don't know if your listeners are not going to know what a tenement is. <laughs> because I lived in a tenement. I lived yeah. in, a, in recovery. I lived in a, you know, a low-income building yeah. that, you know, in early recovery that didn't have heat and hot water a lot of the times. And you're talking about in the middle of a first world nation, you know, yeah. <laughs> the biggest city in the world. And I'm living, you know, with a with a, an abandoned building as the view from my, my, my window. Yeah. Um, and she was from, like, you know, a suburb. And, you know, but so what we find out is that none of this stuff matters. And certainly as I've gone along and I've been more exposed to more, you know, I've been in the workplace and I've been a professional, you know, for many years. And I've just, I've dealt with more people. But I was, you know, uh, pretty alienated from people that weren't like me, which sort of, since there weren't that many people like me, it sort of, sort of narrowed down my uh, slice of humanity that I could deal with. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, amazing. Like coming into recovery, it just seems like this is shit, right? That you, life is you, the life I want. I can't have because there's this dream that I can have the benefits without the consequences. And sobriety seemed to me to be like a provisional life. Like, oh, sounds great, New Year's Eve, sober, wow, right? Like it just seems un. <laughs> rock and roll just it's not cool but then the experiences you have in sobriety you could never convey that to someone who's brand new this is going to be awesome <laughs> right the well, people you know, you'll when, meet when and, I first, yeah it's true when i first came around you know we had a lot of parties mm-hmm. we did a lot of you know we did a lot of social stuff and i think that's really important when people first come around especially young people so um you know, but over time, you start to sort of shift what gives you joy. Like, now I just, like, really like hiking with my dog, you know? Yeah, for I sure. I like getting up early and writing. Yeah. You know, time with the kids. But, you know, everybody gets to choose, you know. If, if that's something that a person never wants, then they don't have to have it. They could have something different. I, and you, you see all sorts of lives and dreams being realized in, in, in recovery. How old were you when you got sober? Uh, okay, you crashed a boundary. I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Just 
just say I was in my 20s. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. I don't want to age myself too much. Okay, okay, I'm good with that. It's funny that these, these, this gender stuff is like, and the ageism is just like, mm-hmm. you know. I, I love the people on Instagram that are like in their 70s and they're rocking really nice fashions and everybody like thinks they're so cool and, and like, that, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that like, Bernie Sanders wouldn't be as popular if he was a female, you know, the ageism. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 you know, some of those things, It's I, I call it liberal mythology, that we think we're way ahead of ourselves, but when it comes down to following our feet, how we vote and all that sort of thing, it's just, we, we're not evolving yeah. <laughs> at, at uh, sort of northeast speed, right? <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and the stuff is so subconscious, so subliminal that people don't even realize they're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Our biases are like uh, core beliefs. We all have them. It's like lizard brain stuff. We're reacting to them um, unintentionally or at least unconsciously for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Now, why do you write in third person have you ever played with writing in first person or even second person yeah i have i have uh i'm wondering was it this book i i did a book where i shifted back and forth between third and first person and my agent was like no no this doesn't work i thought it was brilliant myself (laughs) i I think i did the i thought it was so brilliant i did all the flashbacks in first person Mm -hmm. and i think first person is fine um, I, what I did in, in Widows in Law was I did third person, but I changed the person's point of view. It was based on chapter, like one mm-hmm. chapter would be Lauren's point of view. And then the other chapter would be the second wife's point of view. And, and, and then the teenager's point of view. And it was actually quite fun to do that. I think it was, it would be much more confusing to do that if I said, first person and you know and, and then it was a different first person but what was fun about it in widows and laws that the the all three of them had very different perceptions of each other you know so you know you have the second wife thinking something about the first wife that the first that the first wife must be doing this must be thinking this and right. it's actually not true and then you switch over and you have the other one you know thinking about the other wife and and all kinds of false things as well. And and so that was actually, I had some fun with that, given the first wife and second wife uh, relationship, an interesting thing to see. Because look, nobody gets through a, a divorce and remarriages and stuff without, you know, being a bit of a jerk. <laughs> right? <laughs> like you could work through... You could work through the program, you work through it, and you get, like, uh, awareness, acceptance, action, right? <laughs> First, you got to be just a slight jerk, even if it's only in your own mind that you, you know, character assassinate people and, and mentally, you know, uh, you might do better than you think. But So I have not gone through a divorce um, in my life, but I've gone through a, a breakup or two, mm-hmm. and I've watched enough divorces to see, like, how how messy they can be. Well, you were in the uh, business, right? You you were a family law lawyer for a while? Oh, well, actually, I was dealing with uh, 
child abuse and, oh, yeah. uh, and neglect. So yeah. yeah, that was a, and it was in the height of the uh, the crack epidemic. So as you can imagine, we yeah. had forty thousand children in foster care in New York, and and plus we had the. Uh, deadly AIDS epidemic at the time mm-hmm. where, where there was no treatment and most of the children were not making it. And so, yeah. And so I worked a lot on the uh, medication issue when the medications were developing. And uh, so I, I had a lot, to do. I did a lot of work on the AIDS epidemic, pediatric AIDS treatment. And thankfully we went from a terminal disease to a, a more chronic illness that people could live with. So uh, yeah, it's hard to... Those of us who lived through that epidemic in the rooms, it's amazing that we have gone, we have gone from that part of uh, just watching people dying every day in the rooms. Well, whether it was Toronto or New York or Montreal or anywhere else, you, you, we, we lost a lot of friends, right? We did, because I, in, the, in the late 80s, 85% of heroin addicts, uh, from what I remember, 85 or 86 percent were HIV positive and yeah. and there were there was no treatment and most people were dying rather quickly and suddenly yeah. and so yes the, when I came in the rooms the, in the first year you know we kind of and that we lost the whole um in NA we lost the whole t- you know all mm-hmm. the old timers what we called old timers because we were a new fellowship in New York we had only started in 1981 oh yeah so you no know kidding. when I came yeah, yeah so I came in 89 and basically anybody you know, almost everybody who came in 86 or earlier died. Yeah, yeah. And so that was, you know, which was both, you know, it was a, a, it was horrible. It was also uh, a time when we all drew together. And it was also, uh, you know, there were certainly a lot of lessons about, you know, staying clean no matter what. I mean, because people's children were also being born HIV positive. Yeah. So it was a quite a horrendous thing um, that we all went through. This this I know. My personal story, in recovery, HIV is a gift of recovery because I, I came into sobriety without real boundaries and uh, a good understanding right. of risk-reward. I guess late enough in the cycle where, uh, you know, I'm... I have a chronic condition instead of a death sentence. Yeah, at Go diagnosis, ahead. I thought, that, wow, this is really a, you know, what a great recovery story. This is how it ends, <laughs> you know. That a lot of people were catching it in the rooms and not using, even though people were saying they were using condoms, they clearly weren't. And a lot of people, you know, some very close people to me also, also caught it in the rooms. Yeah. Yeah. Like I write nonfiction. Unless I'm songwriting, then I'm kind of fictional, right? And I, I, I asked about first person, third person, because when I write a song in third person, no one ever pins the characters in the song to me. Even though, of course, I draw on me, I draw on people I meet in the rooms, I draw on my whole life experience, right? And if I do it in first person, no matter what how much of a collage it is of so many people I've met, maybe including me, they always go, oh, that's so you, Joe, right? (laughs) Uh, But people just think I'm talking to them if I write the song in first person, and I can reveal, uh, you know, my deepest, darkest secrets in third person, and no one will ever pin it to me. It's kind of funny that way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I actually tried to write a memoir like that in third person. Uh, that was that's <laughs> on my list. Not, nobody ha- liked. <laughs> have you ever started a memoir all. or thought about it? So tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it, I called it "Circling the Drain," which has been uh, probably ten people's memoirs title since then but I wrote it quite a long time ago and you know you just I I just think that you're either all in or you're not in terms of memoirs like you know writing a fictional memoir is like nobody's interested the level of self-disclosure I just don't I'm not sure that I really wanted badly enough to to do that and I and I am not sure that is, it is sufficiently of service to make it worth me disclosing to that point. Now, you see, I do actually disclose quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, um, totally, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but it, it's but not only that, it's other people's lives too, right? We can't tell our story mm-hmm. without, you know, revealing some truths about others. And, yeah, I've, I've mused over it and then always gone, no. <laughs> And I'm not sure what the impetus for doing it would be. I mean, there's more than enough memoirs out there. I mean, the only problem is that sometimes there's not as big an appetite for the fictional characters in a a drug story because there are so many memoirs out there and people Mm -hmm. are reading those. So publishers aren't really, publishers aren't as readily buying fictional drug stories as they are memoirs. Um, and then in our society, everybody wants everything to be a reality show. So I suppose uh, it, people are just coming out and, and talking talking about their business, as they say. Um, and yeah, so I did write something in third person that was based on my couple of years as a as a, a drug seller. Yeah, and uh, you know, and also dealt with quite a bit about the humiliation of being a young teenage addict because that was really bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I didn't really want to talk about it in first person. I don't mind talking about it with you, Mm -hmm. but I didn't... And and maybe I wouldn't mind as much putting it on paper, but I I think at this point that, you know, the the world is saturated with all our drug stories. and, and, And I don't necessarily feel, even though mine is a pretty pretty wild one I don't feel like I'm that unique that the world has to have mine in writing well I might change my mind one day well and and I bet uh, there are a few people petitioning for you to do so there have been some yeah (laughs) but I don't think they understand what you know I don't think they understand that you know what that actually means in terms of no no they don't yeah you can't, yeah, the years of working on it, and then, you know, I and I just, I don't know, it, 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 it just feels like sort of immature, like, you know, notice me, notice me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you yeah. to notice me. You know, I, if you want to notice me, notice the fact that I have created a world that, you know, absorbs you and makes you want to live in that world for a few days and enjoy the development of some fictional characters and so everything draws on real life but you know I, I just find that fun after a while you start to feel like you're not that unique that everybody has to you know read about you for, for two weeks yeah I don't know it's just my thing now do you did you did you write a memoir I'm sorry no no I n- never did no? you know like other yeah. than like 
in writing classes, I've done like little exercises, but never had any intention of, you know, sharing it. You know, I, I'm pretty um, all out there, you know, if I'm asked to talk about my, you know, experience, strength and hope, so to speak. But, but yeah, I've never, right. I've never put it to paper, but, you know, I let secrets out in uh, fictional stories here and there. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. I must say, I, I know one of the things about writing great fiction is having great characters because you have to know more about them than you reveal. You have to know, uh, you know, where their grandparents were from, what, how their parents voted. Even though these are things you'll, you'll never discuss, you, you have to have your characters act naturally in any given situation. So you have to really know their background. Do you find the characters to pit? pick uh, to fit your storyline or do you have these characters that you I can't wait I gotta write something where I can include someone like a Nicole or someone like a Carl or like a Brian Silverman or something like that which comes first the the story or the characters yeah the, the story absolutely comes first mm -hmm. you know I don't even consciously pick characters sometimes I'll read back and I'll be like reading it as if I hadn't even written it now it is true though that like as I that I will do like a timeline of their life mm -hmm. but not generally before I've already started writing them you mm -hmm. know I'll start to say okay well she's doing all this I better figure out who she is yeah <laughs> you know um and so as I go along because uh, a lot of times when I'm writing, I may know the beginning. I tend to know how I want it to end up, but I often just don't know how I'm going to get there. So I've got A and I've got C, but the rest of the alphabet is a blank sheet. And I and I just go on sort of faith that as I keep writing that it's going to that the story is going to come. It's it's the most difficult thing for me, I think, is writing and not knowing where we're going. Yeah. But so the editorial process is really important because then I go back and I and I sort of see what what I need to add and what I need to subtract and, and what stuff is just silliness and I don't need it in there but you know as I'm going along I'll start to do you know timelines now in, in Widows-in-Law the idea from Widows-in-Law came from real life many years ago my sister um, was a, the first wife of a, a, an up-and-coming attorney and he had his second wife was a trophy wife and I quote unquote I shouldn't say that about a real person yeah. but his, he had a second wife that was prettier and chicer and and richer and in, 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 in the suburbs and they had a teenage daughter and he was actually my my ex-brother-in-law was actually killed in a car crash and so my sister mm -hmm. and her um and this and her widow-in-law were sort of trying to figure out what to do with my niece who had recently going to live in Westchester because she was like a rebellious 14-year-old. Uh, so I, you, as you can see, that's sort of the setup for the book. And I used to always say to my sister, so how's the widow-in-law doing? What's going on? Like, and, and so that, that term, yeah, I had started using that term and, and it was true. Well, I actually say in the book that I the widow-in-law term comes from the term wife-in-law, which I had learned, mm -hmm. which which the main character Lauren had learned in family court because that that's what that's what prostitutes in the same stable will call each other um, 
when they have the same pimp, they will call each other wife-in-law. But yeah. in reality, I well, I had heard that term for other in other uses, but I, I, I learned that when I was myself in jail. And, and, and oh, oh, you know, a woman came in, it was, it was right before election, so they had swept up all the, the hookers, and, and back then there were a lot of street walkers around 42nd Street and the like, because it was, it was uh, the beginning of crack, so the price of prostitution hadn't gone down enough to make street walking unprofitable. So these girls were all getting rounded up in these prostitution sweeps that used to go up, and they walk in, this woman walks into the bullpen, pen and she says, and she sees her wife she's like my wife-in-law you know <laughs> the wife-in-law is like it's like who's taking care of my baby you know yeah. and she's like don't worry the babies were so-and-so yeah. you know and so they were all in you know so i that was so anyway so widows-in-law actually came from from a real uh relationship that i thought and i thought wow this would be such a fun book and and also there's a sort of when people die sudden death, there's a sort of paranoia that sets in, even though we may not give that much credence to it. You're thinking to yourself, how did he die? Yeah. You know, one car, car crash. What, what happened? So the mind is working in that way anyway. And But in this case, the husband was actually uh, doing something nefarious and mm-hmm. his death was not, you know, uh, as innocent as it might have looked. The relationships and the, the characters sort of grew from that, but at, over time, you know, so they, the book starts writing itself, and then over time, you know, I I would have to go back and figure out who these women were so that I could, so that I could write them. Now, um, do you write your books chronologically? Because it doesn't read chronologically. You 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 go you start this story with one of the apex scenes, just a little taste of it, and then you go back, and then there's all these flashbacks so that we get to understand characters better. In fact, we all sort of you know judge Jessica, and then you tell us a little bit about her damage her background and and you go fuck right you know we feel right. ashamed for judging her <laughs> right <laughs> we all do yeah yeah and so what what kind of struggle do you go through with do you wonder is this really going to work instead of writing a story chronologically which would be the easiest way to do it um you know quentin tarantino has shown us you don't have to do that to have a really uh, you know, swanky and entertaining story. So w- what's your thought process and the emotional toil it takes on you in sort of separating out the ch- the order of the chapters? Widows and Law, you know, I've written somewhat differently than some of mine. Like, it's not unusual for me to write the story chronologically, not with the the back you know the the full chapters of backstory or sections of backstory but you know maybe with some references to backstory and then decide to deepen it by doing like a full uh backtrack in time so yeah the way it is structured was not the way it was structured the first the first draft mm-hmm. like the first draft I sort of went through and then I then I decided how can I craft the story how can I how can I make the reader reader understand better what's going on. I I actually deepened the the 
the husband's character as I went on and, and, mm. and liked him more as I, I learned mm-hmm. more as I went along because I really didn't know now about, I didn't know as much about his character as I did by the time I finished, mm-hmm. you know? And so then I went back and I was like, oh, okay, let me do this and let me do that. That's not so uncommon in my fiction where, I'll, well, I'll, where I might sort of skim some of the, some things just to get from that point A to point C where the story unfolds and I know how it's going to turn out and then I can go back in the second and third and tenth draft, you know, working through some of the other stuff. So that, I, I would say in Widows and Law, that's what happened. Now, I just finished a draft of a spinoff of Widows and Law called Mother Outlaw. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And... Um, <laughs> That's a great play on words. Yeah, which focuses on Lauren, thank you, Lauren's mother. Um, And in that case, I went through and I, any of the backstory, I knew exactly where it was supposed to be. So I think I'm just getting better Mm -hmm. with time. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't go back in and change uh, or add chapters or or any of that. You know, in, in other books, I have done more of that and the 13th step it, it was straight through it was, it's sort of a road a road book so mm-hmm. they just you know it was basically i don't there's no i don't think there's any flashbacks in that book there's there's some certainly some people are having memories but there's not full chapters of of going back in time so it's just i guess every book is it's its own uh life and and look you know i i think i'm basically growing as a writer so you know things that i did before i might not do now yeah 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 i mean the the book there's a book that i uh that i'm working on also like uh rewriting that's uh called the lower power oh wow and uh yeah that one i'm hoping to get to my publisher within the next couple of weeks Uh, an iteration of it was in the uh, the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Awards and was a semi-finalist there and then I, you know, did some other things. That, when I first wrote that one, um, it was 1,200 pages the first mm-hmm. draft. I had to bring it down to 400 pages, so, um, which was an amazing feat, I, uh, I say so myself, but uh, I had I, no you, idea. You don't have to tell me, yeah. There's a, an old uh, joke about uh, a student who br- brings uh, their uh, project in late, a couple days late. And the teacher said, this was a 3,000-word assignment. You've written 10,000 words. And the student says, I didn't have time to write 3,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and when I first started writing fiction, I didn't know how much detail. I didn't actually, I thought I wasn't going to be able to write enough. Mm-hmm. Um, just putting in all these details and all this backstory and dreams and all sorts of silliness and and you know then I had to take that big it, it ended up being I said that when I started writing I said well all I have to do is write a page a day for 365 days and I'll have a book and at the end of 10 months I had 1200 pages I still suggest if anybody who's thinking about writing like the page a day for 365 days you'll get a book but try not to write 10 pages a day now, talk about your relationship with writing. Were you a writer before you got clean and sober? Is this a gift of recovery? Like, I always thought I should go be a lawyer because I was such a screw-up as a teenager. I wanted everybody to recognize how wonderful I was. I mean, ego was a great motivator for me. But 
I did always like writing and, and I wanted to sort of change over to journalism and my mother discouraged me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I luckily I'd done an eighth and ninth step with my mother, so that's fine. But but the funny thing is that I really was in I was writing short stories and poems in high school and I um my friend Judy was a couple of years older than me in high school and she needed to have a short story for her, her English class. And I think I might've still been even in, in much if I was, I must've been in my first year of high school. And I remember writing a full short story for her to hand in and she did and she got a B. So that was my first official foray and into actually not getting paid for my writing, but mm-hmm. writing on, you know, for purposes other than my personal enjoyment was writing a short story so my other nefarious, my nefarious friend could have a, a paper for her English class. So yes, I've been a writer. Yeah. <laughs> Since I was a young delinquent, I have been a writer. I really didn't have that much time between uh, law school and, and low bottom addiction for me to, you know, think about think what interested me i uh when i was an attorney at 22 and i i was a disbarred by that time i was 26 so you can imagine how quickly i was working on uh on my downfall at that time yeah well uh uh cocaine and drugs and alcohol and yeah that'll uh you know it, it'll create some ups and it'll create some downs <laughs> yeah, I was a I was a Titanic uh, seat shifter. Like I would switch seats on the Titanic all the time. So I yeah. was a um, alcohol and pills. Then it was uh, cocaine, and then it was heroin. Yeah, that's so that that's my, called uh, medically assisted recovery now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope it's better. I hope that medically assisted stuff is more is better than the methadone days because you know that orange handcuffs is the way I view that but I you know I'm, I'm a lot more mm-hmm. um, I'm more receptive to maybe not to methadone so much but to some of these other drugs which I don't completely understand mm-hmm. with the people doing heroin now dying so bad like in our day I don't know about you but in my day yeah. when you heard of somebody ODing everybody ran to the spot to try to buy it buy it because the the dope was you know so much shit that nobody (laughs) yeah that you were trying to get some good dope right but nowadays you know with everybody dying you know we can't like we used to say things like well when they get like i I remember talking to people whose parents i'd say well you know i was a heroin addict and look at me so your kid has hope now i don't even say stuff like that anymore because yeah um when People don't get a chance to get sick and tired of being sick and tired anymore. When they're sick and tired of being sick and tired, they'll come and get get clean. Well, you know, if they live that long, and half of them aren't. So, like, I'm like, whatever, whatever you need to do to keep from dying until you get to the point where you could hopefully be completely abstinent from mind-altering substances, go do it because I just don't want to see people dying. Like my mind is changing as I learn more uh, about these things. I had a sponsee who he was a friend, right? But you know, he called me his sponsor, uh, and um, he had uh, three five-year medallions. Um, like his uh, drugs of choice were varied, but his program of choice was AA. He asked me to sponsor him. 
I gave him his third five-year medallion. And he was on methadone, and he didn't tell anybody because he knew how people uh, reacted to that. And he, mm -hmm. he sponsored so many people. He helped so many people. He went to a lot of meetings, and he was one of those guys who just were people were drawn to him because he was a gentle spirit. I didn't know enough about it to even have an opinion. That's between you and your doctor, and, and I was keeping an open mind about it. Because of course it's uh, you know mood altering, and um, uh, and he had his 15 year medallion before cigarettes finally killed him. <laughs> but like wow. he he found a way that worked for him, right? And and you know we all know people who um, self medicate with uh, you know either benzos or weed or something like that i'm mm -hmm. i'm a straight edge recovery guy but but i do not yeah. judge right and and harm reduction yeah. is a whole other thing that i'm making room for addiction uh, medicine doctors you know call it palliative care right you know <laughs> you know why not give them a, at least a ch shot at recovery because people go it's a lifestyle choice they they couldn't stay sober and the outcome rates for you know, a twelve-step modalities isn't. It's only five percent anyway. That's the talk on the street, mm. right? And you mm. know, so we're just gonna do no harm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the, that five percent outcome rate is might be slightly deceptive. I'm not sure what the baseline is. Is who like? Is it people who've tried it for one day, ninety days, a year? Like, you know. I, I think that the success rate, if people could stick with it long enough with the 12-step modality, is probably a lot better than 5%. But yeah, if you if you walk in a meeting and you say for 30 days, maybe it is only 5 Or if yeah. you walk in a meeting once, does that count? So I don't know what those stats really measure. Um, but obviously, yeah, I mean, people have to do what they have to, have to do to survive. I Having been on methadone mm -hmm. for a couple of years, yeah. and... I don't know what the difference is, but I know that there was a difference between being on methadone and being clean. Yeah. And so that's why I kind of like have a hope for people that they will be able to one day embrace something that would allow them to not be on those kind of maintenance things and also just the freedom of not it's knowing a freedom. that you're not. It's a freedom. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you can so, wean yourself hand, off, yeah. all the better, yeah. Yeah, but I, I certainly can't judge anybody maybe some diabetics would be better off not eating foods that require them to be take medication for diet i mean there's a lot of diabetics that you know type 2 diabetics that don't that if they could control their weight and their diet and their exercise wouldn't need to be be medicated but if they can't do that then we certainly would you know i'm not a, med a physician but I, I i suppose they take medication because they, they they're not able to do that so i think it's the same thing you know Suboxone. I don't know about methadone. I have no no opinion on that. Yeah, <laughs> or on any of this. Yeah. I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a medical professional. Yeah, I'm learning all yeah. about you know like the Sinclair method and you know just uh, the, the use of naltrexone for alcoholics and mm. they're finding mm. it could have use for other uh, you know mental health disorders too. And, who knows? It's it's you know the the world is constantly changing, right? Where it's it's right. not stagnant, and uh, I, I want to be an old dog that can learn new tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sort of yeah. you know and adapt. Stay open-minded. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. 
Um, so, so uh, you answered another one of my questions. You're already working on uh, another uh, book. How's life now? How active are you in sort of uh, peer-to-peer recovery? You know, what's your uh, your week look like, and how much do meetings still uh, play a role in your life? Uh, well, I'm I'm a meeting maker. Yeah. I've always been a meeting maker, and happy to be one because it keeps me very much centered. I recently quit my day job upon giving notice. I started a 90 and 90, mm-hmm. continue to do a 90 and 90. There's a saying that meetings lessen the shock of change. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want to stay spiritually centered um, as my life changes. I may, you know, take another day job anyway. Um, you know, so I'm not saying that I'm not going to not going to have a day job, mm-hmm. but things are changing a lot in my life right now, and so I definitely have, have recommitted myself to my recovery. And I and one thing I could say is that sometimes things have come up like psychological issues, emotional issues, and long term recovery that I didn't expect to deal with. And I am just thrilled that I've stayed in meetings because. You know, we think that when we've got like one year clean, five years clean, sober, whatever, you know, um, that we kind of know what to expect. (laughs) We don't need this anymore. We don't need that anymore. And I'm just so glad that when I've seen that sometimes my emotional state was more fragile than I had realized or that something new shook, you know, kind of rocked my foundation, that I've still been in meetings. If you're not in the habit of making meetings and you isolate when things are going badly, that's not a great thing. That's yeah. like an enemy of, of, of survival. You know, and look, given the kind of story I had, you know, and how severe my disease was, like, I just don't play with it. I yeah. am, And I'm happy that I like meetings. I like being around people. I have friends of all different ages and all different races and all different genders. I mean, I mm-hmm. just have this diversity of wonderful people in my life and people that I could turn to and could turn to me. And I get to... I get to see a a much larger slice of life than people who are not continuing in an active program of of recovery. Um, Because if you look at people who are, you know, in the world, they get in their little group and that's about it. I just think we're really graced with like really full, rich lives. And, And the other thing is that one of the things, you know, like when we talk about we will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it, you know, one of the reasons we don't regret the past is because we could see how our story could help somebody else. Well, if my story is no longer helping anybody else because I'm not, you know, involved in recovery, then I've just cut, like, why did I have to go through all that suffering? <laughs> you know? But instead, what I see is that we who have gone through hell on earth have this huge gift to save other people's lives, and they need us. I wouldn't want to cut myself off from that gift. You know, it's I'm getting the gift too. Like when I see somebody suffering, that I can maybe say something or do something that will help them to not overdose tomorrow because they maybe they won't pick up tomorrow. And that is a huge gift. And to, to give that up by not being in the rooms, like I, I feel that I would be a fool to do that. So I'm really happy and I'm, I'm just really glad that I um, maintain my my connection to meetings and fellowship and, you know, keep doing this. And I still have an awful lot to work on. (laughs) You know, 
I really do internally. I, I have a I have hope of endless growth. You know, this the growth doesn't stop. And also I have hope that some of the crap that I have inside of me will get better too. I feel the same way and I, I know plenty of people who are sort of twelve step graduates. They get what they need and they go on and they have as good uh, you know, maintaining sobriety outcomes as people I know who go to lots of meetings. So, but for me, I, I never have a hard time explaining to people that I'm an addict. Uh, what I have a hard time for someone who doesn't know recovery for them to explain is why do I, why am I still here? And uh, what they don't understand is a, it's sort of like going to the gym. Like health isn't something you do and then you're healthy for the rest of your life. You have to maintain it. So an hour here and an hour there is right. is what you got to do. But you know, it's it's not a chore, right? It's it's way better than Netflix. That if you listen, if you really listen, uh, you know the real life stories that are being shared. Uh, there was a, an actor from California who was hanging out at our meeting while she was doing a job in Toronto. And she said that uh, she used to uh, drink and use drugs just to have the kinds of conversations she can have walking into a room of strangers in 12-step recovery, right? And Yeah, and I would also just note that though people may be seeming to do well who aren't making meetings, and some of them might be well, yeah. that their story is not not the end doesn't mm -hmm. happen until the end right and I know that there was a certain point in my recovery about 18 20 years sober people in my close support group stopped making meetings completely mm -hmm. and you know out of three of them three of them relapsed and one of them died of an overdose yeah wow so and I'm talking about people who had double digit mm -hmm. you know 15 to 25 years sober before they you know decided that meetings weren't for them or before the, you know, the, the relapses happened, but yeah. they were in long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. And they all, they all relapsed eventually. Yeah. And one, and one died. Just, you know, my oldest friend in the world. So I, you know, and so look, I don't judge anybody for really anything. Yeah. Because that's not my place. And I wish everybody the best. And I hope that people that stop making meetings don't need them but i i don't assume you know because that's the trap right we think oh they're doing fine so maybe i could do fine well you know see where they're at in 20 years recovery isn't a get out of jail card free for all emotional turmoil and difficulties in life exactly. it's just a, a general admission ticket to life right you know like shit's gonna happen as you get older everybody's going to end up on some mood-altering substance for a medical reason at some point. Yeah. Like, not nobody's going to get away without having a, a, a dental surgery or a knee replacement or, yeah. a, or a serious illness. So, you know, I mean, that's a place where a lot of people end up you know, relapsing. So it's really good to be grounded yeah. at all times. I, I just don't feel like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm cured. Sure. Yeah, sure. yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think it's great to bring a beginner's mind all the time, and and I, I don't always mm. do that. Sometimes they go, oh, I, I know what you're talking about before they finish, and shame <laughs> on me, right? Because I, I'll miss something when I do right. that. But yeah, I got to keep it yeah. fresh. Now, Michelle, for all the people listening, by the way, here's another question you don't have to answer. 
Is uh, Michelle W. Miller a pseudonym or your real name? Uh, <laughs> um, a person could find my real name if they looked hard enough through the Michelle W. Miller. Um, <laughs> I can say that. Okay. It's not. It's neither. It's neither my real name or a pseudonym. I've actually uh, used my uh, husband's last name. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I usually in my legal career I use my unmarried name. Yeah, so right. um, I'm out there in both names all over the place, and 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 sometimes a Google sh- search will uh, reveal the connection between my two names. I'm right. not too concerned about it. I mean, my look. Once my criminal record, like used to be, that I used to like not talk this freely in public <laughs> as I'm doing with you, but. When my criminal record started coming up from a Google search, if I was going on an interview, I was like, well, look, if you're going to know the bad stuff, I might as well tell you the good stuff, too. Yeah. Or I'm, I'm even even take it one step further. I'm going to tell you how bad it really was. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> that I, yeah, that I, who was an attorney of an actually a very, very good law school from a very good, you know, a very big big firm yeah. would end up, you know, with a felony conviction, you know, on Rikers Island, you know, you could, you know, if you're going to see that through a Google search, then I'm going to tell you all about recovery, too. Yeah. And for people who just are listening and go, what a fascinating person this Michelle is, what's the best way to get your book? Should they go to the publisher, Amazon, a bookstore, or what would you recommend? Well, it's, Right. It's available everywhere. Yeah. So if you go to michellewmiller.com, you could, the buy buttons are smaller, but if you press in there, it will, it will give you the various different buying options. My publisher is named uh, Blackstone uh, Publishing. So if you just, you know, Google Michelle W. Miller, Google um, Widows in Law, you'll, you'll see. And I am certainly I have a page on Amazon, which you could see the 13 step zombie recovery and you could see widows in law there. And, uh, the paperback is coming out next week, but you can get the Kindle edition or the hardcover now if you want, or pre-order the paperback. Um, I think the hardcover is on sale, so you might, you know, that might be a, a good move. Did you narrate and, uh, the audio book or, or get someone else to do that? No, no, I would never, I would never burden anybody with my voice for 10 hours. A pro- yeah, a professional actress who does, you know, a ton of audiobooks uh, did did the audio for this. And um, Blackstone has a huge uh, audiobook production arm, which is, you know, as a publisher, they, they originally started as yeah. an audiobook uh, publisher and, and, and moved into print later on. So they... Uh, we auditioned about six people. We listened, you know, we listened to them, and uh, I thought the lady who t- who ended up did it, doing it, you know, got like those sort of humor and, and, mm-hmm, and the like. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of humor in books. Yeah, so I thought she got she got the joke, so I, we, we chose her. Yeah, with your opening scene, I wondered if you, having only read Thirteenth Step before, whether you had some sort of bloodlust because. I mean, the thirteenth step has a lot of you know death and and blood everywhere, and your opening scene does. But of course, you tone it down a little bit in this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, 
you know, but I think as as zombie books go, that the Thirteenth Step was was relatively less violent than a lot of like it's not the point of it is not the death and gore like i want to you know you have to set the scene and you know it, it is a zombie apocalypse yeah so there's that and i think there's a little bit of humor even in in the um yes you know, like all good zombie stories there's got to be a little bit of tongue-in-cheek about it because you know it is basically absurd yeah you know but but uh that was such a fun book to live in frankly so most of that is about hope as is most things that I write, so try not to be too over-the-top glory. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Interrupting here, because next, Michelle and I talked about the end of her book and alternative endings and the gruelingness of ten drafts before a book is ready, the book that's available now. So I didn't want to ruin anything for listeners who want to read the book. I will play a wee bit more. I'll skip ahead to where we talk more about Michelle's current writing. I wrote it standalone, but then I realized that um, it would be better to, like, it, it, it's that people actually want to see what's going to happen with the characters. So what I ended up doing with the, the, the next novel focuses on Lauren's mother, who's basically um, not anything like what Lauren thought she was. Like, Lauren's whole idea about how great you know, idea. her mother was. This sounds great. great. Um, what's your timeline on it? I don't know. I'm still trying to work out um, with the publisher whether they're going to publish it and what, you know... You know, I, I, so I, I have no idea. And there's another book, too, that I'm, you know, finishing up that might end up being first before that, which I think is a shame, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. Yeah, it is what yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm not, you know, you're not in control. Like, when you self-publish, you're in control, but you're broke. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, and I kind of like the control, but it's an awful lot of work, too. Like, it's a lot less work to have a publisher do the stuff. Like the work we do. Do you do you are you self publishing your stuff, or do you have a? Because you actually have a publishing company of some sort. Right? Yeah, Rebellion Dogs Publishing. Yeah, and um, yeah, I I self publish because when I wrote uh, Beyond Belief, uh, Agnostic Musings for Twelve Step Life, like I, I was about uh, you know forty to sixty pages in, and I thought, oh, I got to send this to Hazelden, and and they really sat on it for a while, but. At the time, it was edgier than it is now. It was more sort of reactive to the sort of tribalism and the sort of uh, mean-spirited theology that I seem to be mm-hmm. seeing in the rooms. And so it was it was way more like in your face and uh, than mm. than than the final project. And and they said we we love this book. It's going to be published. It will offend our core audience, so we're going to take right, well, a pass on it. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, a lot of the yeah, it seems like a lot of the um, atheist recovery books, which were really important for me in early recovery, especially, um, mm-hmm. they uh, end up sort of being very, very religious. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean? Like they just call it something different. Yeah, they'll just you know, talk about it as, like, sort of a spiritual thing that Mm -hmm. we're not, you know, like, 
which I'm fine with because I'm kind of into that spiritual thing that I don't understand. Like, I don't, you know, have to understand. So I'm a little bit more, you know, you know, I come from three generations of atheists. My grandfather was the, uh, was actually the vice president of the American Atheist Society. <laughs> but, <laughs> Didn't Bill Wilson you know, talk about but, him? <laughs> yeah, you know what, if he did, I don't know about it because mm-hmm. he, I, I don't, I don't think he was an alcoholic, but you, yeah. you never know because yeah. I yeah. I didn't find out things about him until way later. But you know, like so, I'm really oh, like I came in very militantly atheist, and now I'm sort of like you know more in the I'm going to depend on whatever it is that's out there. So I still kind of feel more of a need for like a faith life than. Yeah. Um, Probably most people that would profess atheism or agnosticism profess, you know, but, you know, so, so some of those books, but some of those books will be sort of like that, yeah. you know, like they're like, well, we're not going to call it God, but it's like sort of, you know, and I think, you know, I don't know, I, what I talk to about with, you know, like people who ask me who are more on the atheist bent, bent is that like 90% of our brain, they don't even know what it does. Yeah. You know, so things like prayer and meditation do seem to work, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, like, I have... It's yeah. scientifically proven that prayer works. It isn't proof of God, but prayer mm-hmm. works. Yeah, that's for sure. Right, right. So, uh, anyway. Yeah, and um, do and you usually go to um, AA, NA, CA? What, what's well, your you know, of- I, I mean, when my kids were young, Mm-hmm. I only could do, like, because I have twins, right? Yeah. So when they were, you know, and I had a full-time job, yeah. you know, but it, it basically, by the time they were toddlers, so I had um, lunch hour, by the time they were four or five, the only lunch hour meetings I could make that were, like, it was right across the street from my job was AA. So I've always been in AA as well. From Like, I've always had, like, an AA home group, but I, my home my home fellowship is NA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where I got clean. Mm-hmm. And, but even back in those days, like, there were no daytime meetings in NA at all because yeah. NA was so new. So we all went to the one o'clock AA meeting. Yeah. That was in Harlem. So, so, because I couldn't really, I needed more than one meeting a day when I was young and when I was new. Um, so, you know, I've always been in AA as well. And, and, consider myself a member of AA. I've been mm-hmm. much more doing um, almost all NA for the last, you know, couple of years, just mm-hmm. because of where the meetings are and, and that, it, you know, I do, I want to hear drug, about drugs. I don't yeah. want to hear somebody <laughs> say they went under somebody, their grandmother's pillow to steal money for alcohol. Like, I'm like, that is such bullshit. And if you can't tell the truth in your qualification, why should I trust anything else you're saying? <laughs> you know, so I've always had a problem with people yeah. not talking about drugs in AA. Yeah. And But New York's um, pretty good well, about that, though, isn't it? Like, meeting uh, to meeting, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That's, uh, yeah, many different When I strikes, came in, yeah. it wasn't good at yeah. all, yeah. you know. And, um, you know, and so that's why when I go into AA, I started, like, in, in probably 1991 calling. I would, in AA, I would just say, hi, I'm Michelle, I'm a member of AA. And I would not call myself an alcoholic because mm-hmm. I consider myself an addict. And alcohol is a subset of, 
yeah. being an addict and I don't consider it different and mm-hmm. like I don't say I'm a crackhead because I was never a crackhead so mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I'm an alcoholic if I never hit a bottom with alcohol yeah. you know yeah <laughs> that's, so that's the way I have always I always felt about it and again we could have gone on but at some point I have to be mindful that you have to get on with your life and I and Michelle didn't want to overstay our welcome but to go out I'll say visit Rebellion Dogs Publishing Rebellious Radio page, looking for episode 51. There are links to music, to this book, and more. Look for episode 51. It's like Area 51, but no, it's not at all like Area 51. Anyway, as per our custom, I have some music to go out with, This is the title track from the album No More Waiting Rooms, Toronto indie artist Sarah Siddiqui. Lots we can relate to here. Thanks for coming along the ride on Rebellion Dogs Radio once again. And again, Michelle W. Miller, thanks for your creativity, your recovery, and sharing some time with us. Hi, sorry about that. Let me me do it again. Take two. two. I'm Sarah Siddiqui, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Rock on. Folk on. Rock on. Pop on. (laughs) I'm such a dork. (laughs) Goodbye, dust on the guitar. Bloodshot, wanna be rock star. Goodbye, chemical control And flipping blood work for myself Goodbye, doctor, book me, please I'm losing memories No more waiting rooms No more hospital food No more pink and white paint Mixed alcohol veins Goodbye, drugstore clown You're always kicking around See your AM games Pills and liquid stains Goodbye, doctor, write me more Put me out on the floor No more waiting rooms No more hospital food No more Wife pain, mixed alcohol veins. So long telling me what it is. So long picking up refills. I see her just to find my mess. All repeated medicated trips. Telling me what it is 
so long picking up refills I see her just to find my mess All repeated medicated trips No more waiting rooms No more hospital food No more pink and white Just to find my mess no All repeated medicated trips No more waiting rooms No more waiting rooms Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio.